The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 99. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. How are we one week away from August? The summer is quickly getting by us. We're the middle of the summer right now. It's hard to believe. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you've been staying well and safe and healthy. You know, this is the time where I was hoping to say we're at the tail end of this pandemic. It's been one heck of a year and a half or so, but who knows? With all the news and the statistics coming out, I'm hoping that we're at the tail end. But uh, I hope everybody continues to stay safe. And wow, just when you think the summer is supposed to quiet down a little bit, here we are with so much to report on, so much news, so many developments, so many trends to keep watching. I have got such a full episode for you. Put your feet up, cook your dinner or your meal, or sit on the train and relax. I've got so much to give to you today. We're going to talk, of course, about what's been going on with vaccines and masks. Uh, We're going to then move from COVID-19 and talk a little bit about some recent developments when it comes to non-competes and employee mobility We'll talk about a new development in a free speech case that I had started talking about a few episodes ago. We're going to get New York specific, get a New York state of mind with a couple of real significant developments in the great state of New York. And we will even throw in some wage and hour thoughts. Wow, what a full plate I have today. So took me almost two minutes just to describe what I'm actually going to be talking about. Let's actually talk about it. You know, as we get further into the second half of 2021 and then on the horizon of a new calendar year in 2022, I do think that more and more employers are going to be considering implementing mandatory vaccine policies as a condition of employment. Why, I am asked so often, why have employers still been reluctant? Why do we still see in July of 2021 so many employers thinking about it but not yet implementing mandatory vaccine policies? I think there are really three reasons for the reluctance. And this isn't based on a scientific poll, but just anecdotally, I still think that there are a lot of employers out there across the spectrum of injury of, of uh, industries that have not implemented mandatory vaccine policies. And I think there are three reasons. Number one, because we know, the EEOC has told us, that the ability to mandate vaccines is still subject to the obligation to accommodate employees, those who have a true disability, those who have a sincerely held religious belief or practice, and those who have uh, a pregnancy that prevents them from getting vaccinated. Reason number one, I think that employers have been a little reluctant to mandate vaccines is because they just don't want to get into the business yet of having to deal with a significant influx of accommodation requests. And maybe even more to that point, I think employers don't really want to deal yet with distinguishing those who do have a right as a matter of law to an accommodation And on the other hand, those who simply have a generalized concern, those who may be anti-vax individuals, people who don't have a right, a legal right to an accommodation, but who just may not be all that thrilled about getting a vaccine. They're just generally concerned about it. Employers don't want to yet get into the business of distinguishing those requiring an accommodation and those that the company does not have to accommodate. Reason number two for the reluctance, I think, 
is because depending on the workforce that you have, what kind of teeth is your policy going to have if you're going to implement a mandatory vaccine policy? In other words, if you have a workforce where 50, 60, 70 percent, even more of your workforce are not only not vaccinated, but also have expressed uh, a lack of willingness to be vaccinated, what are you going to do with your policy? Are you prepared as an organization to terminate such a large number of your employees? And what is a mandatory vaccine policy doing to the morale of your particular workforce? I think employers remain reluctant to get involved in that kind of issue. And then thirdly is the EUA issue, the emergency use authorization issue. And as I'm going to get to in a moment, that reluctance or that issue uh, has been dissipating a little bit. But what is that issue? Well, we all know because we've been talking about it. The vaccines that are currently available have been approved by the FDA on an EUA basis solely, an emergency use authorization solely. If they have not gone through the full FDA approval process, though applications have now been put in for both Pfizer and Moderna for uh, full FDA approval, those applications have already been submitted as of today. The available vaccines are only available on an emergency use authorization basis. The FDA's rules require that recipients of these EUA vaccines be told that they do not have to get the vaccine if they don't want to. They have a right to refuse to be vaccinated. So the question has been, does that FDA rule, does that FDA process actually trump and take precedence over an employer's ability to implement workplace policies such as a mandatory vaccine policy? There has been virtually no guidance over the last few months. We have all been talking about it as lawyers. Companies have been hearing about it. And so that has been another reason why employers have been reluctant to implement mandatory vaccines. They are afraid of the possible exposure in a lawsuit where an employee or groups of employees claim that there is some violation of public policy. There is some exception to the at-will employment rule that you can't terminate me, employer, because the FDA says I have a right to refuse to be vaccinated. Well, when I said a moment ago that that concern has dissipated a little bit, I meant it. And here's why. And the summer has shown us a couple of reasons why the concern is dissipating. First, in the middle of June, as we've talked about on this podcast, there was the first-of-its-kind lawsuit that was brought against the Houston Methodist Hospital in Texas, where a group of employees made this very claim. The hospital was implementing a mandatory vaccine policy, and the employee said, we cannot be required to take a vaccine that the FDA says we have a right to refuse. Well, the court issued a decision in that case in the middle of June, outright rejecting that challenge, saying, no, there is no coercion. The worst that could happen to you, and the court acknowledges it may be a bad thing for most people, but the worst thing that could happen to you is you lose your job. That is not enough to support a claim for violation of public policy or other law. In other words, the court in the Houston Methodist Hospital case rejected the claim that employers cannot mandate vaccinations that are solely approved under the EUA process. There were people who were happy with that decision, but there were certainly a lot of people as well who said, well, that's great, it's the first decision of its kind, but it's only one decision. We're still a little bit reluctant to go ahead and implement mandatory vaccine policies until we get a little bit more guidance. Well, July came, and here's the guidance that many people were waiting for. The beginning of July, the Department of Justice issued a memorandum opinion for the deputy counsel to the president of the United States on this specific question. Again, the memorandum opinion starts off by noting that in each of the authorizations, the emergency use authorizations for the three vaccines that are currently available, 
the FDA imposed an option to accept or refuse condition, which is required to be told to all vaccine recipients. In fact, it was required to be put into fact sheets that accompanied the vaccine and that had to be given to and read by the potential recipient. So the July 2021 memorandum opinion addressed the specific question of whether, quote, the option to accept or refuse condition imposed by the FDA regulations prohibits entities from imposing vaccination requirements while the only available vaccines for COVID-19 remain subject to EUAs, end quote. And very simply and very succinctly, the Department of Justice has held that no, consistent with the FDA's interpretation of its own regulations, entities are not prohibited from imposing mandatory vaccine requirements for EUA vaccines. It's a fairly long memorandum opinion. I'm happy to send it to anybody if you're interested in reading it, but you can also uh, go on the website and find it. It is a slip opinion by the Department of Justice, but the rationale was very simple. The rationale is that the FDA regulation only specifies that certain information be provided to potential vaccine recipients. It does not go further and actually prohibit entities, in particular employers, from imposing vaccination requirements if it wants to. In other words, the option to accept or refuse is an informational requirement. It is only information that is required to be given under this section. This section of the FDA's regulations do not go any further than requiring the information to be provided. And the position taken here is that notwithstanding the EUA status of vaccines, entities, including private employers, can mandate vaccinations if they so choose. So it seems like we've gotten the answer somewhat definitively. We'll wait to see if there are any other creative or novel theories that come up in any lawsuits. I suspect we will still see some lawsuits. But between the Texas decision and this memorandum opinion by the Department of Justice, I think it's a safe bet to assume that this EUA issue that has been lingering out there is not so much of a worry for employers anymore. I'm also asked about mask requirements and what can we do about mask requirements, specifically if we as an organization don't want to just limit who comes back to the office to people who have been vaccinated. We want to bring our vaccinated folks and our unvaccinated folks. What do we do about mask requirements? Well, there is this other concern out there as well that you don't want to necessarily identify those people who needed an accommodation from the mask requirement. You don't want to identify those who have a disability or a pregnancy condition, or even those who have a religious belief or practice that required an accommodation. Whether from privacy rights, legal obligations, to just simply you don't want to hurt morale of your workforce, what do you do when you want to bring in vaccinated folks and unvaccinated folks? What kind of requirement do you impose? Well, rather than say something like, for those who are vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask. And if you are unvaccinated, you do need to wear a mask. Rather than that, I would suggest tweaking that a little bit. Here's what I would recommend saying. Something like, if you are vaccinated, you do not have to wear a mask. However, if you are unvaccinated, you do need to wear a mask and follow protocols and if you are otherwise uncomfortable not wearing a mask or being around people who are not wearing a mask, you should still wear a mask as well and follow whatever protocols you are comfortable following. A subtle difference, but I think it's an important one because by expressing your policy that way, you are not just indicating that anyone who comes into the workplace and is not wearing a mask is only doing so because they're not vaccinated and perhaps because they've got a disability or a religious objection or that they're pregnant. 
you are leaving open the very real possibility by stating it that way that people could be vaccinated and still be wearing a mask if they're more comfortable doing so. But just when you thought it was easy to deal with this mask issue, well, here comes July and here comes another development. You will remember, and it seems really like a year ago, before Memorial Day, back on May 13th, the CDC came out and sort of surprised everybody with guidance that essentially said if you are fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear masks indoors. The CDC guidance in May did not really speak to uh, outdoors. It didn't uh, address that or change anything there, but it did say for the first time on May 13th, 2021, that if you are fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask inside. Well, we've all been seeing and reading the same news and we see what's going on with this Delta variant and some really troubling statistics as the trajectory seems to be going little bit backwards, particularly in certain uh, highly unvaccinated areas around the country. And so on July 27th, to, uh, 2021, the CDC backtracked a little bit on its mask guidance. Again, it's important to remember that this is still only guidance. It's not a rule of law. It's not a regulation, but it is guidance. And because it's coming from the CDC, it has been followed and has been relied upon not only by uh, state and local governments in making their policies and requirements in those jurisdictions, but also by private employers who are implementing their return to work policies based on what the CDC says. So what's this new change in policy when it comes to masks? Well, on July 27th, the CDC is changing its recommendations based on current scientific information, particularly as it relates to the Delta variant. And in particular, the medical evidence which suggests now that even those who are vaccinated have the same level or showing the same level of the Delta variant virus in their bodies, which makes them just as likely or makes them able to transmit just as easily the Delta variant to other people as unvaccinated people are. Part of what went into, I think, the original relaxation of the mask requirement is that the scientific evidence had shown that if you are vaccinated, even if you get COVID-19, the levels in your body are much smaller than those who are unvaccinated, thereby making it much less risky that you are going to be transmitting uh, the COVID-19 infection to anybody else. But current scientific and medical data shows that with this Delta variant, that's not true. Even vaccinated people may have the same levels of COVID-19 if they get it in their bodies so they can just as easily and just as quickly transmit COVID-19 to other people. Because of that, the CDC is now backing off on its prior guidance, which said that if you're indoors and you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear masks. Instead, what it's now saying is that when you are indoors in two situations, either one, you are in a geographical area of substantial or high transmission, you should be wearing a mask even if you are fully vaccinated. And in number two, all individuals in schools, levels K through 12, need to wear a mask regardless of whether you've been vaccinated and regardless of whether you are in a jurisdiction that has a substantial or high transmission rate. So again, to repeat, the CDC on July 27th has now said that even if you are vaccinated, you should now be wearing a mask either if you are indoors in a geographical location that has a substantial or high transmission rate of this Delta variant, or if you are any individual, whether it's a teacher, staff member, or a visitor in K through 12 schools, regardless of your location, again, you should be wearing a mask now, according to the CDC guidance, even if you are vaccinated. And if you are wondering whether you are in a jurisdiction that has a substantial or high transmission rate, um, the map and the definition of that term is 
located on the CDC's website. You can check out the CDC's COVID-19 data tracker, which tracks the level of community transition by county across the country. And you can see if your particular jurisdiction meets the definition of substantial or high transmission. We are already starting to see some fallout on that. Just announced President Biden on a national level now plans to require either a vaccine or regular testing for all federal workers. States like New York, like Connecticut, and other states around the country are now getting their teams back together to decide whether they should change their return to work policies or more specifically their mask requirements after they had followed the prior May guidance that the CDC issued in relaxing its mask requirements for fully vaccinated individuals. So a lot going on. Uh, We were hoping that we were never going to take any steps backwards, but looks like we are taking a few steps backwards and you need to check out what your jurisdiction is doing, your state, your city, your local towns, what they're doing when it comes to return to work requirements and in particular mask requirements so that you know on an up-to-date real-time basis uh, how you need to adopt those new rules and protocols to your return to work policies. Are you tired of talking about vaccines and masks and mandatory policies? I guess it can't be helped, but yeah, I'm a little tired of it also. Keep it right here. Keep listening to us. And I will nevertheless continue to keep you updated on all COVID-19 and vaccination-related developments. But there are a whole bunch of other things that I do want to talk to you about. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about non-competes and employee mobility and What's been going on there? Well, another brief history lesson just to give you some context. You may remember that back in May of 2016, a little more than five years ago, then-President Obama signed an executive order which expressly was intended to issue a call to action to states to do something about what President Obama believed was an unfair and an inconsistent use of non-compete agreements. What are some of the things that he found in this study that led to his executive order? Well, among other things, evidence indicated that non-competes are being used in instances where the benefit is likely to be low from a company standpoint, but the cost high to the particular worker. Worker bargaining power is reduced after a non-compete is signed, possibly leading to lower wages. The study also found back then that the broad geographic and temporal scope of non-compete contracts that were imposed on workers limited the mobility of workers in a long-lasting way, harming not only the workers themselves but the overall efficiencies of the labor markets, and also that non-competes that stifle or tend to stifle the mobility of workers who can otherwise disseminate knowledge and new ideas to startups or other companies that may be moving to a particular region can limit natural competition, fair competition, and the processes that lead to agglomeration economies. Specifically, what did President Obama find back then? Low-wage workers more than any other group are compelled to sign non-competes. The implications and the enforceability of non-competes are often unclear to those workers who sign them. Employers tend to draft overly broad or patently unenforceable non-competes, either with the thought that a court will simply blue pencil them and modify them accordingly, or that they will ultimately win and avoid any kind of court action because employees simply don't have the money to defend those kinds of costly endeavors. President Obama's call to action in May 2016 led to significant action, significant legislation in many states, Massachusetts, Illinois, the District of Columbia, to name a few. Fast forward now five years to 2021, President Obama's vice president and now President Joe Biden is continuing to carry that torch forward. It's a little bit more broad in scope in terms of what he's doing, more broad than just non-competes, but President Biden 
as you may have seen, just issued an executive order that attempts to correct various wrongs that the president believes stifles competition in the United States, which in turn, according to him, raises consumer prices and lowers employee wages. His executive order, again, not just limited to non-competes, but it does deal with non-competes. The executive order lays out more than 70 different initiatives with more than a dozen federal agencies hoping to accomplish the goals of fewer employee mobility restrictions and on competition in general. One of the biggest initiatives mentioned in that executive order, restricting the use of non-compete agreements and upping enforcement of antitrust laws. Now, to be clear again, this was not the enactment of a law barring non-competes or even proposed regulations or any rulemaking process. This was an executive order. Again, another sort of call to action, in this case, not just to states, but to federal agencies. This is like President Obama in 2016, a call to action on a very clear agenda. And to the point of non-competes, President Biden's new executive order specifically directs the Federal Trade Commission to begin an agency rulemaking process that would restrict or perhaps altogether ban the use of non-compete agreements except those needed in certain circumstances, such as those necessary to protect in a narrow fashion defined categories of trade secrets. We will watch the FTC and, and what it does in response to President Biden's executive order, and we also should continue to watch to see what state and local jurisdictions are doing in response to this call to action. As I said a moment ago, we saw a lot of states enact legislation either banning restrictive covenants outright or significantly limiting their enforceability. Now, I suspect that trend will continue. So depending on where your organization is based or where you have employees working, and it becomes even more critical now when you have so many remote workers out there, it's important if you intend to have any form of restrictive covenant, be it a non-compete or a non-solicit, that you check to see what your jurisdiction is saying about it. Used to be we all knew California and how it felt about non-compete agreements, but we didn't think there were other states that were California-like on that issue. I suspect that as the months and the years continue, there will be more states, more jurisdictions like California in restricting the use of non-competes than there are not like California. We go from free mobility to free speech. And on one of my recent podcast episodes, and you know that because you listen religiously to every one of my episodes, I talked about a case at the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, involving social media and free speech. Again, this wasn't an employment case, and it does involve First Amendment rights under the U.S. Constitution in a public setting, and the First Amendment of the Constitution, you know, doesn't generally apply to private employers, but there are some employment law implications, and it's real interesting to see what the court did and how can we forecast what the Supreme Court may actually do down the road when it comes to employment cases. The case name for those keeping score at home, as always, Mahanoy Area School District versus BL. And as you'll remember, it involved a cheerleader who was kicked off the school cheerleading team because of some, well, let's say, uh, uh, choice words that she posted outside of school hours about the team and about the school on her private Snapchat account. In an eight to one decision, the United States Supreme Court found in favor of the cheerleader, found in favor of her right to express herself through social media speech under the circumstances of this case. Now, while this may be uh, that the decision is really limited to the circumstances of this case, as I said, it's useful to take this decision and forecast where the Supreme Court might be going in later cases. This decision, this uh, case, involved off-campus speech. This is not something that the cheerleader said while on school grounds. 
Uh, and while there may be circumstances where the Supreme Court said off-campus speech through social media or otherwise may still be regulated because of a particular school's interest, it's not fair, not appropriate to regulate this cheerleader's off-campus speech in this case where even though it was arguably vulgar what she said, the speech was neither threatening nor particularly obscene, and there was nothing that showed that there was any particular disruption to the school or school business. On top of that, the speech was not posted during school time, not posted while the cheerleader was on school property, and it was posted on a personal device on a personal private social media account, all of which suggested to this 8-1 majority little to no justifiable interest that the school district had in regulating the speech. In other words, the First Amendment rights outweighed any interest of the school in this case. So what about employment cases? Well, I think one of the things you can glean from this decision is that the Supreme Court clearly believes that not all individual speech in all circumstances pertaining to a particular organization can be regulated simply because of the relationship between the speaker and that organization. In other words, simply because the individual is a student of the school or taken another step further simply because one is an employee of the organization. And we've seen that with other types of regulation and other types of situations. The NLRB does protect certain types of concerted activity. We do have state laws, state legal activities laws, that allows for individuals to speak or engage in certain activities that are legal as long as they are not on company property and not engaged in during work time. As long as the particular speech is not found to be discriminatory or constitute bullying, as long as it is not anywhere near disruptive or more than simply trivial, we have found that employees do have rights as private employees of private employers to certain types of speech through social media and otherwise, even if the First, uh, the First Amendment of the Constitution does not apply. And it seems that if we were to have a case in the employment context, the Supreme Court would probably take a different position, although the analysis would be a little bit different, not dealing with the Constitution. It seems that this Supreme Court would likely find, again, that not all individual speech in all circumstances pertaining to the organization can be regulated simply because there is an employer-employee relationship. So, interesting decision, obviously, by the U.S. Supreme Court, and it will be equally interesting to see what, if any, fallout there is in the private sector when it comes to employment cases from this decision. All right, let's turn to the great state of New York. We go from California before to New York on the East Coast, and there are two things that I wanted to talk about, uh, two significant developments in New York, and that doesn't mean you should shut off your radio or shut down your computer and stop listening to me right now if you don't have any employees in New York or if your organization is not located in New York. Because even if you're not here in New York, even if you don't have employees in New York, as I've said a thousand times on this podcast, developments in New York, like California and like some other states, tend to indicate trends and developments. And so if it's happening in New York, if it's being enacted in New York, there is a good chance that we will start to see the same issue be regulated or litigated in other parts of the country. So the first New York development I want to talk about again is the New York HERO Act. The New York HERO Act, as you will remember, back on May 5th of this year, New York's Governor Cuomo signed into law the New York HERO Act, which essentially provided for two primary requirements on New York employers relating to workplace health and safety. Again, even though I think it was prompted by the COVID-19 pandemic and what we're all going through for the last year and a half, 
the New York HERO Act is not limited to COVID-19 as an airborne illness. The first of two requirements under the New York HERO Act is based on a requirement that the New York Department of Labor issue a model airborne infectious disease exposure prevention plan. Yes, let me take a breath after I say that. The model airborne infectious disease exposure prevention plan. And once the New York Department of Labor issued that model plan, within 30 days, employers were required to either adopt that model plan or establish their own plan that at least exceeds the DOL's model minimum requirements. And if you as an organization did not simply adopt the Department of Labor's model plan and instead you established your own plan, you had to do so with the cooperation and involvement of an employee committee, a group of your employees or union members, if there is a unionized facility in your organization, that provide input uh, on this safety plan that you will be adopting. Well, it took some time, took some time, but finally, the New York State Department of Labor, at the beginning of July, did issue uh, its model plan. And in addition to issuing a singular model plan, also issued separate templates for certain industries agriculture, construction, delivery services, domestic workers, emergency response, food services, manufacturing, personal services, private education, private transportation, and retail. If you are not an organization in one of those specific industries, then the model plan, the initial model plan, is something that can be adopted for you. So again, Here's something that's real important for you to understand. Within 30 days of that issuance, employers were required to adopt either that model plan of the Department of Labor or establish their own. The 30-day period expires on August 5th, 2021. So by August 5th, New York employers need to adopt the model plan or their own plan. However, however, According to the New York HERO Act amendments that were recently enacted, whatever plan you do adopt simply needs to just be adopted. It doesn't need to be distributed or actually put in effect. That doesn't have to happen until the New York State Commissioner of Health designates a particular airborne infectious disease as a highly communicable disease that presents a serious risk of harm to the public health. Again, to be clear, you are required by August 5th, New York employers, to adopt a model plan issued by the Department of Labor or create another one of your own to adopt. You have to do that by August 5th, but that plan does not need to be in effect yet until, and this hasn't happened yet, until the New York State Commissioner of Health designates an airborne infectious disease as a highly communicable disease that presents a serious risk of harm to the public health. We will keep you updated, of course, as always, when we hear from the New York State Commissioner of Health to that end. The second bit of important news coming out of New York is that uh, some enforcement guidance has just been issued for the New York City Fair Chance Act. You will, again, remember that the New York City Fair Chance Act initially became effective almost six years ago now, in October 2015, and the Fair Chance Act prohibited New York City employers from inquiring into a job applicant's criminal background until after a conditional offer of employment was made. And if you were then planning to rescind a conditional offer made because of what you found out in the criminal background search, you were required to go through a process that included giving the applicant a meaningful chance to respond before the company makes any type of final decision. 
The purpose, I think, was obvious, right? The purpose was to ensure that employees, quote, are not arbitrarily disciplined or excluded from employment opportunities when they do not pose an unreasonable risk of harm and there is no direct relationship between the criminal history and the job, end quote. And that's the key here. Just like it was when New York State passed Article 23A of the Corrections Law to require a certain analysis be done as opposed to simply making a decision, yay or nay, on employment because someone has a prior criminal record. There needs to be some tie-in, some connection between the job that's being sought or the job that is held and the particular criminal history. The New York City Fair Chance Act, enacted six years ago, it's important to note, doesn't just apply to employees, but also to interns, freelancers, and independent contractors. And for those of you who are sitting there raising your hand to ask me the question, well, why did we need this New York City law if we already have a New York State law? My answer is, well, that's the case in almost every situation that the New York City Council decides to pass something uh, a little bit more limited in nature, um, a little bit more stringent perhaps than New York State. But in this case, the city law was passed because the New York City Council did not believe that the New York State law and its required analysis was actually doing enough to avoid situations where criminal histories were disclosed early in the hiring process and then applicants were being disregarded simply because of those criminal histories without looking at any of the required factors, without doing any real analysis. Well, that's a long-winded way of uh, a history lesson for the New York City Fair Chance Act. That was six years ago. Mike, what happened now? Well, I'm glad you asked. The New York City Commission on Human Rights just issued a very long-awaited guidance on the Fair Chance Act and particularly on certain important amendments that will become effective today, July 29th, 2021. How topical is this? I am happy to send you the updated guidance just issued by the New York City Commission on Human Rights. If you want, please email me. Uh, if you want me to send it, you can also go on the City Commission and Human Rights, their website, and find it yourself. But I wanted to just give you a few highlights here to let you know what's going on. The biggest development, I think, in the guidance was to talk about the process for employers when it comes to criminal and non-criminal background checks relative to giving a conditional offer of employment. The guidance tells us, that New York City employers can only rescind a conditional offer of employment based on the results of an authorized criminal background check or the results of an ADA-permitted medical examination or based on other information that the employer could not have reasonably known before the conditional offer was made and if the employer would not have made the conditional offer if the information had been known. Plus, there must be a two-phase screening process. First, for all non-criminal pre-employment screenings, such as employment references, educational, and other non-criminal permissible areas of inquiry, those screenings must be completed and passed before a conditional offer of employment is made. However, second phase, for criminal screenings, for criminal history screenings, a New York City employer, according to the guidance just issued, can only request and review criminal history after the conditional offer is made, and then it is subject to the Fair Chance Act's assessment, notice, and other obligation provisions. Well, that puts New York City employers in a bit of a quandary, particularly those who use a single reporting agency or otherwise use some integrated screening system because you must now adopt a system that internally segregates criminal history and non-criminal history for the decision maker. And based on this guidance, you must engage in these screenings at different times relative to giving a conditional offer of employment. 
So it was a lot to take in, and it's way beyond the scope of this particular podcast episode, but I did want to highlight it. If you are an employer in New York City or if you are uh, engaging in any type of recruiting process with New York City-based applicants or otherwise have New York City employees for whom you are doing screening even after they've started, the New York City Fair Chance Act and the new guidance just issued by the New York City Commission on Human Rights is something you might want to get your hands on and start talking about. Other changes that are also taking place this week deals with how employers need to assess the Fair Chance Act's stated factors dealing with open pending criminal arrests of applicants, in other words, non-convictions, as well as how you deal with the criminal conviction history of your current employees. The new amendments also deal with other process issues, including when and how employees must respond to a rejected applicant or a rejected current employee who suffers some adverse action based on issues that come up involving the Fair Chance Act. So a lot to take in there, but again, it's not just about answering every single question here as much as it is flagging the issue for you to look further into. Finally, we can't really do an update episode of this podcast without some mention of wage and hour issues. This one is particularly important for those in the tipping business. The United States Department of Labor just began a new proposed rulemaking process to address three types of situations, and effectively restrict the number of employees who can be paid less than the minimum wage by having the company take a tip credit. Three types of situations. Situation one, involving jobs that are tip producing, such as servers, bussers, bartenders. Situation two, involving jobs that directly support tip-producing roles, such as, for example, individuals preparing silverware, folding napkins, garnishing plates, wiping down the bar, arranging bottles behind the bar. They directly support those who are in tip-producing positions. And then situation three, involving those jobs that are unrelated at all because they are neither tip-producing nor are they directly related to tip-producing positions. For example, those who clean the bathroom or clean the dining room or those people who prepare the food back in the kitchen. So the United States Department of Labor issued a new proposed rule for these categories. For Category 1, jobs that are actually tip-producing, There's no real change in terms of whether and the extent to which you can take a tip credit and pay less than the minimum wage as long as you are otherwise following tip credit rules. But for the second category, jobs that directly support tip producing work, you can take a tip credit still against the minimum wage paid to those individuals, but only if, according to the new proposed rule, only if the work performed by the individual is not performed for a substantial amount of time. How do you define substantial amount of time? Well, the Department of Labor defines it as either more than 30 continuous minutes or more than 20% of the hours worked in that work week as a tipped employee. So again, you can take a tip credit against the minimum wage paid if you are in a job that is not tip producing per se, but directly supports tip producing work, as long as the work is not performed for more than 30 continuous minutes or more than 20% of your hours worked in that work week. Also, the first 20% of your directly supporting work can be paid at a tip credit rate But any time over that 20%, you cannot take a tip credit and the individual must be paid at minimum wage. For the third category, those that are unrelated because they are neither tip producing nor directly related to tip producing roles, 
they must clearly, according to the Department of Labor, be compensated at least with the minimum wage and no tip credit is allowed to be taken. Wow. For those of you who are impacted by this, potentially impacted by this, uh, it is not yet a rule or it's not yet a final rule, not yet a final regulation. It is a proposed rule. The Department of Labor is starting the rulemaking process. If you and your organization may be impacted by this, by all means, speak out and provide your comments. It's often easier to do so not just alone as an organization, but through a consortium or a trade industry or trade organization. That is, in fact, what we tend to do regularly. We will provide comments and uh, speak to folks in Washington and around the country on behalf of a consortium of business interests. Speak up. Make your voice heard if this is something that might impact you positively or negatively. But we will keep you posted as to if and when we get the proposed comments back and we get any tweaks or we get a final rule on this tipping issue. Well, that's 50 minutes in and I think I covered a lot here today. Hope I didn't confuse you too much on any of these issues and I hope this was useful as always at least to raise some flags for further discussion, further questions. That's why I am here. Happy to help, happy to answer questions. Please continue sending the emails with great feedback. I love everybody giving me ideas for guests and for specific issues to talk about on the podcast. Hey, I'm open to positive and constructive and even negative criticism. I don't care. I've had people tell me I talk too fast, that I talk too slow, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I take it all positively, and in the end of the day, I appreciate you all listening to the podcast in the first place. So on that note, I'm going to let you go here. Uh, Thank you so much, as always, for listening. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.